So let me just do a little explanation before we dive into God's word. If you have a Bible, let's go to Romans chapter 8. We're going to finish this chapter up. And this is, a, this is like Paul's crescendo on Romans chapter 8. Um, he just kind of goes into a litany of reasons that we are to worship the Lord, to praise him, and to serve him, and to follow him. Um, so let me just say from the outset, uh, I had chemo this past week, and because my white blood count cells were uh, extremely low, I was only able to take half a chemo, and they, they put on me after the second chemo, the second week in a row, it's called Nulasta, it's a little box, and 27 hours later, it injects me with medication, stimulates your bone marrow to stimulate the production of white cell, blood cells. So um, my wife has already gotten on to me. I just want you to know I, I, I'm not trying to um, not have contact with you or, um, you know, like snub you. Um, I really shouldn't have any contact with anybody in this condition that I'm in right now. So, but um, I will be here to worship. I will be here to preach as, as long as I can, for as much as I can. Um, so if you see me wearing a mask and I don't hug you, don't shake your hand, and I've already done that with some of you, uh, my wife has already chastised me for that. <laughs> so to keep me from further chastisement uh, before I get home, um, uh, once I'm done today, I'll be going off the stage and you'll see me next week. Now, I don't have chemo this week, so I'm coming on Easter Sunday with both barrels loaded. I'm going to tell you. So, all right, so in Romans chapters 6 through 8, this section we've been in for a several weeks now, it is all about Paul helping us to understand what does it mean to live by the Spirit, what does it mean to be empowered by the Spirit, to be directed, to be guided by the Holy Spirit, and how he takes what has happened inside of us and makes that reality in our everyday lives. And so one of the reasons this is so important is because life, uh, life includes with it pain, suffering, hardship, valleys, difficulties. The list can go on and on. And so God wants us to be prepared for those things, not to be surprised by them. It's not a question if they're going to happen. It's just a question of when they're going to happen and how often and what it's going to be like and what it's going to look like. And so somebody always usually says whenever they are encountering setbacks or persecution, uh, even Paul started in verse 18 of chapter 8, he says, I considered our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So Paul says, man, there's just no comparison here as to what God has in store for us and what we're experiencing in the here and now. People often say, well, if God is so gracious and loving and kind, why doesn't he just do away with all evil, all suffering, all hardship, and just get rid of it once and for all? Well, it is in his plan, but if he were to do that today, first of all, he'd have to get rid of the earth upon which you're living. Because the earth, God's creation, was affected and impacted by sin. That's why Paul said in verses 19 and 20 that even creation groans awaiting for its day of redemption. The second thing that would have to happen is that God would have to take all unredeemed humanity out of this world. All right? So God says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, it's not his desire that any would perish, but all come into repentance to faith in Jesus Christ. So this is a part of God's process, but let it be known that the Holy Spirit of God is, is restraining evil in the world as we live in today. Now, it may not appear to, that, to be that way. The second Thessalonians reminds us there's coming the day when the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, will be removed and evil will begin to run its course unrestrained, which is called the tribulation. And so literally it will become hell on earth. So remember the bookends. Here's creation. It was good. It was perfect. We messed it up because of sin. Book of Revelation is God is in the process of redeeming everything that sin impacted. He's going to destroy the present heavens and earth and recreate them without sin, without the impact, the influence, the effects of sin. He's going to do the same for us in our glorified body and state of being. We are in our perfected state of being, and we will spend eternity with God our Father in heaven, which heaven will be here on earth. The great Jerusalem will come down and be the capital city of, of planet earth. And this is where we will reside. It's not that we're limited to here, but certainly this is where the Bible calls, talks about often heaven and earth, heaven and earth, heaven and earth. God is going to restore 
everything back to its original intent, just as we desire for that right now, but it's a process, and the process is called history, and you and I live in a finite part of that history as God is moving towards his ultimate destiny for this planet as well as for you and I. So in, in uh, light of that, Paul says there are four promises that God has given to us when it comes to suffering. Part one is that God, in verses 28 and 29, he says, you know, God uses all things, good, bad, the ugly, and he works them together to good for those who love God, called according to his purposes, and we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so God is determined to make us more like Jesus, and how he pursues that purpose is through every avenue and aspect of our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between. The second thing he says and reminded us in these verses is that our journey ends with the redemption of our body. In other words, uh, where pain and sorrow is transformed into healing and joy, which is what happens when we end up in our glorified state of being outside of this world. Right? So we don't reach our glorified state of being in this present time frame. We were created for eternity, not time. And so we will live for eternity, and the doorway from time to eternity is called death. And everyone will enter through that door at some point in time in their life. And so that is the hope that God has given to us. We, we live now in the time frame called, I call the dot, and the line is eternity. So why Paul says you cannot compare what we're experiencing now to what God has in store for us, because what we experience now may happen for 60, 70, 80, 90 years of your life, however long you live. But when you compare that to the extent of eternity, there is no comparison. You can make a contrast, but there is no comparison. And so the third thing he says, in the meantime, while we're grappling with all of this, the Spirit of God abides within us. And he indwells us and empowers us and he prays for us and he intercedes on behalf of us, which is why last week I said when we find ourselves in these deep, dark valleys of suffering and pain and whatever might be going on in your life, you want to reframe your thought processes. Yes, we may become angry with God and we may question God, but one of the things I determined early on in my cancer diagnosis, I may ask questions for, with God, have questions for God and I may voice my emotions and I may, you know, pound the table or whatever else, but I will never question the character of God. God is good all the time. All the time he's good. The question comes, are you willing to trust him even if you never know why this may be happening to you? When Job decided to question the character of God, God said to Job, put on your big boy pants, we're on a conversation. And it didn't go well for him. And it won't go well for you either. Because it's really, answers are not what you need. What you need is the presence of God. And every time we have fear, God would say and answer the exact same way. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Do not be afraid. I'm with you. And so he walks with us. So we reshape our prayer life. Rather than focusing on my adversity, I focus on the outcome of that. More power. More holiness. More fruit. More in tune with the Spirit, more in tune with Christ, the deeper the relationship. Because everything evolves out of that relationship. Jesus is to be at the center of our life. He is the vine, we are the branches. When we abide in him, we bear much fruit. The fruit of character, the fruit of conduct, um, the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, it's, so I chose very early on, I'm going to be glad, I'm going to be joyful, I'm going to be thankful. I may not understand it, and I may... At times, you know, throw a little temper tantrum, but then I just let the Holy Spirit kind of reel me back in. And the last one is that we rekindle our hope in God's goodness. Because Paul's logic is, that, listen, if God paid the highest price for you to be in a relationship, the life and the blood of his only begotten son, if he paid that highest price and he supplied the greatest power to accomplish that, the power of the resurrection and the same resurrection power that brought Jesus out of the grave is the same resurrection power that indwells you through the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you think that God's going to drop the ball before he gets you from here to eternity and he has completed everything he started in your life? Not a chance. And so Paul says, on the basis of this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And Paul begins to draw a parallel between the way that we think and the way that we actually live our lives. In fact, I put this on your, your outline. Your life is shaped by whatever preoccupies your mind. And Paul challenged us in Romans 8, verses 5 and 6 to set our minds on the spirit because what happened, what, what's the outcome of that is there's life, there's peace, there's power, there's joy, there's gratitude. There's a lot of things that happen as opposed to setting my mind on the flesh. And so the Bible says there's one of two ways that we live. We live, you know, driven by the flesh or we're driven by the spirit. It's either hell up or heaven down. And the outcome of those two lifestyles is totally different than if you're trying to straddle the fence or if you're all in one way and become a carnal believer or you are really learn how to live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit and God can take even the most tragic things in our lives and can, it's not a question of God doing something to me, it's a question of God doing something in me and then through me. So Paul comes to these latter verses, verses 31 through 39, and he's almost like a trial lawyer. He's about to close his case on what it means to walk in grace, to be gripped by God's grace. And so he uses six rhetorical questions in order to challenge us to think differently, to reframe our thought process so that we look at our relationship with our Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit absolutely, totally different than perhaps we've ever before so that we come away knowing that there is absolutely no, none, nada, condemnation for those who are in Christ. So what are the questions? Here's what he says. If what God says about me is true, then who can condemn me? If what God says about me is true, then who is going to condemn me? Now, what does it mean to be condemned? To be condemned means that you feel bad about yourself. You hear condemning remarks. Somebody criticizes you. Somebody um, says something that is hurtful, it's cutting, it's cunning, and we know that we have an enemy who loves to condemn us, right? So Satan knows he cannot have your soul, but he can make your life just as miserable as he possibly can while you're still here on planet Earth. And so his condemning accus accusations come against us day in and, and day night. So I think that Paul, he says, You'll notice in verse uh, 31, he begins this. He says, what then shall we say in response to this? What is the this? Well, I think Paul goes all the way back to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to be cruising around the Bible today a little bit. I want to give you some key passages. But in Romans 1.16, he out of the gate says, this is the whole reason I've written this book. Because I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. That word power, the power to save, the power to heal, the power to deliver. Um, he says, listen, this, this gospel has the power to absolutely transform a life. To take a life that is dead in its transgressions and sins and resurrected and transfer it out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of my beloved son and breathe in, not just a makeover, but to breathe into that person new life so that they become a brand new creation in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. This is what he says we're focusing on. I mean, because what was, the, what was the mindset of humanity? In verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed against, in heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their, by their wickedness. In other words, they didn't choose to honor God. They didn't choose to pursue God. They chose their own way. In other words, most of humanity want to create a God of their own making. They want God to react the way they want him to react. They want the God to respond the way they want him to respond. We want to put God in a box, somebody that we can control, somebody that we can manipulate, but that not, is not the God of Scripture. God is God, and he does things that forever confuses us. And that's why he says, you know, your thoughts are not like mine, and therefore your ways probably aren't like mine, and there are things that I keep in, hidden in a mystery, and you're not going to know. But the question is, can you, can you trust me? And so when Paul got to chapter 2, he says, here's what humanity has done. Humanity has chosen to deal with God on one of three bases, either kind of like 
I'm going to make my own God or I'm going to say that God doesn't exist or I'm going to try to have a relationship with God on the basis of my own moral values and trying to live the right kind of life and to follow whatever it is that I choose to follow, or I'm going to just get steeped in religion thinking that if I'm really religious and keep all the rules and pray and study the Bible and do the right things, that somehow, someway, I have earned my way into God's presence. And Paul says that the reason why the gospel has to be so powerful is because you cannot earn your way into God's presence. We are not the solution, we are the problem, which is why Jesus came. That's why he came, and that's why the gospel is so powerful. And so he says in verse uh, 10 of chapter 3, no matter how you slice it among humanity, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Uh, You're included in that no, not one, in case you were wondering. Just want to be a blessing to you this morning, help you out. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. Now, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through what? Faith in whom? Jesus Christ. Not in me, not in my works, not in what I do, not in my religion. To all who believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. This is why we celebrate every single Sunday. This is why we come next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday, celebrating all that Christ has secured for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. In chapter 5 and verse 1, this is a part of the what if. Well, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now Stand. And then in verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, and the, in the same way death came to all men because all have sinned. So remember that Adam was the, the representative of humanity. He was the, the headship of humanity, just as Jesus came as the headship of the new covenant. And so what Adam, when Adam sinned, we sin. Uh, when Christ, in Christ, through faith, in him, When Jesus what? When Jesus died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he was resurrected, we were resurrected. So because we are in Christ, now everything that happened to Jesus, God has already credited it to our account. That is why, therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. Because if God were to condemn us, he would have to condemn his son all over again. And that just is not going to happen. Jesus made one payment for all sin, for all of humanity, for all time. And so in chapter 6 and verse 2, he goes on to say, By no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Verse 22, he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is what? Eternal life. And so the benefit of God working in us is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, God transforming our lives from what we used to be to what he desires for us to be, and that is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So every single day, every single week, every single year, we are marching. We may not be where we ought to be or we want to be, but God is moving us forward as he's conforming us to Jesus, thus having the mind of Christ, the character of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, so that we live the life of Jesus. And God went on to say, How many times do we feel condemned? See, here's how some of you approach your relationship with God. Well, Lord, um, bad week. Didn't pray, didn't read the word, cussed a lot. This is a bad week. Does God condemn you for that? How much condemnation is there? Why? What did Jesus do with all your sin? Cast it as far as the east is from the west. Put it beneath the sea of forgetfulness. I'm not saying that God is not interested in your sin. He is. But not for the purposes for which you think. 
He's not there to condemn you. He's there to help bring you back in fellowship with him, in alignment with him, so that we do not grieve the Spirit, we do not quench the Spirit, but we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit as we confront our enemy, Satan, who loves to condemn. And you remember his tell, his tell, his poker face is he uses the word you, 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 you. You think it's you thinking it up, and you think it's God saying it to you, and you get confused, and all of a sudden now, when we come to worship, it's like, oh, I, I just don't know that I can worship God. I don't know that I can raise my hands because I just feel like a hypocrite. I feel so condemned, and we have to go back to what God says is truth about you, regardless of how you feel. He says, there is therefore no condemnation in you. Why? Because I foreknew you. I foreloved you, and I extended my love to you through my grace in my son, Jesus Christ, and it was there that I was predestined you to become conformed to his image. And I called you out of darkness into light by sending the Spirit to make that call and to draw you out of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And I chose you and I drew you and you responded to the Spirit of God and therefore I justified you. I clothed you in God's righteousness. I've forgiven all of your sin, past, present, and future. I've indwelt you with the Holy Spirit of God that gives you the faith and power to live day in and day out. And I will ultimately glorify you. There is no one who can stop that process. Question number two, if an all-powerful God has purposed my good, then why should I fear opposition? Why should I fear opposition? Again, in verse uh, 31, the latter part of that verse, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? All right, is there any power in the created or uncreated realm that can circumvent God's work in you? No. No. They can't. I like the word if. It's not saying, well, you know, if God were only for us, or I think he might be for me. The word better translated is since. Since God is for you, there is no opposition that can stop the completion of your salvation to your ultimate glorification. Paul put it this way in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day's of Christ Jesus. Now, again, we know that we have an enemy, the roaring lion who is walking around seeking to whom he might devour, that Satan is your enemy. He's not a friend of yours any longer. You're in the kingdom of God. You vacated his kingdom. Now you're with Jesus. And he, again, is going to seek to do everything he can to destroy your life, to destroy your testimony, to break up your marriage, to make your family a wreck, to make a wreck of your finances. And the list just goes on and on and on. So you are fighting against this enemy, and God understands that, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the air. And he knows that our enemy is cunning and he's powerful and he's overtly and covertly attacking us and attacking God's purposes in us. And Satan knows about you and me, our flesh is weak. And so that's what he targets. Whatever your weakest part you know, it's like the weakest link in the chain breaks, right? So whatever's weakest in your life, that's what he's going to attack. That's the part of your life he's after. And if you don't strengthen that link and he breaks it, and then you experience what? You give Satan a foothold in your life that then develops into a stronghold that then begins to develop into a, a way of life and now all of a sudden, I find myself in bondage to something that God, through Christ, has set me free from. But here's the comfort in all this. He says, God is for us. He was for you before time began. He was for you before he ever created you. Just because you are battling with the, your enemy and just because you lose some of those battles and you have some setbacks in your life doesn't mean that God comes along and says, well, you know, Greg, you should have done a better job. You should have been a whole lot stronger. Therefore, I'm not for you anymore. You will never hear those words from your heavenly father. He is for you. He will always be for you. And so this is the message of grace that God is with you and he is for you. And when God saved you, he knew, 
He knew what he was getting in you. That's why grace is so incredible, right? God, I don't know about you. When God got me, he didn't get a whole lot. He had a whole lot of repair that needed to be done. He had a whole lot of, to work with, uh, but he didn't get a whole lot from me. But thanks be to God that he has always been with me and for me. And, and you know, it's your spiritual walk with God and your spiritual growth is never like this continuum. Uh, you know better than that. It's, uh, 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 uh. But over the long haul, you begin to see that trajectory of where the image of Christ is beginning to display itself in your life, in your actions, in your thoughts, and your behaviors. And so that's why when I come to like Psalm 23, 4, and it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are what? You are with me. That is my Savior. It's a valley. It's not a place that I stop. It's not a place I camp out. My Savior, Jesus, is journeying what? He is for me, and he is with me, and he is guiding me, and he's directing me. That's why I don't have to fear is because no matter where Jesus is taking me, he's already been there before. So Psalm 27, 1 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Why do I need light? Because light becomes dark sometimes. Why do I need salvation? Because sometimes I need to be delivered and to know that God is there and walking with me and holding me in his grace is the greatest pleasure I think I've ever experienced in my life. So I love when you get to Isaiah 40, when you don't turn there, but you can turn there where God says, listen, it doesn't matter what you're going through. God can enable you to mount up on the wings of eagles so that you can begin soaring, even though life has beat you down, even though life has brought you to where you can't even hardly walk or take another step. If you will just continue with the shepherd, God in his Holy Spirit will do a work inside of you that is absolutely amazing miracle of God and enable you to soar once again. Amen. Question number three, if God is, gave us his most precious possession to save me, why worry about the rest of my needs? Look what he says in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He gave up his most precious and prized possession, his son. Romans 5.8 says that while we, God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? Now, there are those recently, um, as coming forth from the emergent church, kind of rebranded themselves, known as the red-letter Christians, and who essentially say that only... We're only interested in Jesus, and Paul is just kind of a tragic person who hijacked evangelical Christianity. And they've come uh, essentially looking at the cross. They look at the cross in terms of not God punishing Jesus for our sins, but that sinful man just went wild and crucified Jesus, and, and God sat up in heaven passively and looked down upon that and said, well... You know, um, after all I've done for you, and this is what you've done to my son, but, but I still want to forgive you anyways. In other words, they do not look at the cross of Calvary as the substitutional atonement of Jesus Christ for our sins. They look at it as cosmic child abuse. Why would God ever do that to his son? If God is a God of love and God of passion, why would he ever do that for his son? God says, this is why I have done this to my son. This is why Jesus came into the world, who lived a sinless life, who on the cross was given upon him our sin debt and exchange so that we could receive his righteousness, so that Jesus would pay the ultimate price for the sins of humanity because the wages of sin is death. The reason why God would do that is because God demonstrated his love for you. So that you and I never have to question whether or not God really loves us, which is one of the very first things we question when we find our lives in pain and suffering and tragedy and hardship. And so God 
God is not just passively saying, wow, I can't believe this after all the good. This is what you did to Jesus. Now I'm going to forgive you. No, was God punishing Jesus for us? You better believe he was. I want you to go to 1 Peter, and I want to give you this verse because I want you to write it down on your outline so that if you ever hear this question, you can answer it. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're just going to let the word of God kind of speak for itself today. Verse 23, it says this, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is Jesus entrusting himself to whom? God the Father. He himself bore our sins in his body. Whose sins? Our sins. Not his sins, our sins. Jesus was sinless. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. And that's why Paul says in verse 30, God gave him up, God delivered him, God handed him over as a sacrifice for your sins and mine, which is why when Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he would drink the cup of God's wrath, God, if there's any other way I can accomplish man's redemption, bypassing this cup of wrath, Lord, if there's any other way, let's do it. But not my will, your will be done. You see, that's grace. And grace is excessive kindness. It's preferential treatment. And that's what you and I have received through our relationship with Jesus Christ. So if God gave his most precious possession to save me, then why would I worry about the rest of my needs? Is God ever going to allow me to go in a place in my life where he will not supply what it is I need. He didn't say he's going to supply my wants. He didn't say he's going to supply all my desires. But he says at that given moment in time when I have my greatest need, God will supply it. I've learned that a lot over the last several months. I've had some pretty substantial needs. It's like every time I turn around, I've got another side effect of chemo or whatever medications they're giving me. This morning I got up and had my left leg is numb from the knee down to my foot. And I'm like hobbling around. And my wife is so sympathetic. She's like laughing and falling on the floor. And <laughs> so... Well, maybe not fall. Okay, I, I might have stretched that a little bit. but So my need at that moment in time was my wounded, my wounded um, pride, and so um, God supplied that. I, I love God's grace. Number four is this. If God has already accepted me, whose disapproval do I need to fear? Verse 33, he goes on to say, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, right? As a Christian, it, listen, we're not just trying to live a life to please God. As a Christian, God says, I've already chosen you. I've already accepted you. I've already determined you justified in my, my, my sight. I've, I've legally dropped the gavel and said, you're forgiven. You are clothed. You are you are indwelt, and what I began in you, I'm going to complete it, and, and, and there's nothing that can stop that or hinder that. But again, Satan is constantly accusing us, and, you know, look at what you did, and look at what the, you did this, and you thought that, and I can't believe that if you're a follower of Jesus that you would think those kinds of thoughts, or you would have those kinds of feelings, or that you would harbor that kind of bitterness, or that you would you know, allow that kind of anger to be expressed in such an open and free way, and so... Um, the issue is not who brings the charge. We know that Satan is going to bring charges against us because that's what he is. He is accuser of the brethren, and he accuses us night and day, the Bible says, before the throne of God. There will come the day in Revelation chapter 12 where Satan and his demonic beings will be hurled down to the earth and limited to the earth during the tribulation, which will absolutely infuriate him, and he will unleash all kinds of radical things upon humanity. But even in the meantime, he is accusing us, and he accuses our conscience, and he accuses us before the Father. 
father. So the issue isn't who's bringing the accusation. The issue is who is doing the justifying. God is. God operates in relationship with us through covenant relationship, not contract. And so in this covenant relationship, God says, you are, you are justified. You, you have my approval. You, you cannot have my disapproval. Now, this is, this is what happens when we get in this, this um, thought in our mind. Well, you know, I know, okay, Godfrey gave me my sins all the way up to point A when I got saved, but then after that, I, you know, if I sin again, I get recondemned again, and I got to go back to God and you know, t- you know, confess that to him, and then he's faithful and righteous to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, and then if I sin again, I'm recondemned, and so you're just like forgiving, condemned, forgiving, condemned, forgiving, condemned. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. Listen, your justification is a one-time event never to be repeated. And you are justified in Christ. This is an issue of fellowship, not an issue of relationship. Satan may bring condemnation against you, but it is God who has justified you. The penalty of our sin has been paid, but in order to stand before God, I not only need forgiveness of my sin, but I also have to have be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which is exactly what he has done. And when he clothed you in the righteousness of Jesus, it was a permanent clothing. Amen. And not one single person enters into heaven without having been first clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So if God has already accepted me, whose disapproval do I really need to fear? Because some of you live life on a, um, you need everybody to like you. You want, you know, it's, it's, I got to please people. You're a people pleaser, and if people don't like you, it just really bugs you, and and um, you think if, you know, you know, this person doesn't like me, they said this, they tweeted this, or they said this on Facebook. And can I just kind of help you offload all of that? Um, you know, if you really did something wrong for which you need to go apologize and make amends and all those things, that's one thing. But if people just don't like you because of your stance, because here's, here's the world in which we live in. You have the culture of heaven and you have the culture of hell that are clashing one another on planet earth. And if you're living in the culture of heaven and you're standing for the culture of heaven, I guarantee you there's going to be people who do not like you. But that I'm not living for their approval. I'm living for the approval of my Father. I'm living for the truth of God's Word. I am a dispenser of the truth. And so if people do not like me, if they say things against me or, you know, shove something out on Facebook or whatever, it really doesn't matter because I have my Father's approval. Number five, if Jesus was judged in my place, how could I continue to feel guilt and shame? Verse 34 Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that? Who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. You know, there can be an accusatory voice of the evil one, but sometimes the most accusatory voice is what happens right in here, within your heart. Because you know what you know? You know you. You can hide a lot of things from a lot of people, but you can't hide what's going on inside of your head and in your heart. So let's go to 1 John for a moment in chapter 3. Now here's another good verse that you need to um, lay hold of. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 21. Listen to what he says. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what, what, pleases him. In other words, there's going to be this battle inside of you, right? But here's, what, here's the beauty. Is God knows more. <laughs> no matter what's going on inside of my heart, I know what, what's going on inside. Of, God knows more. He knows my heart. He knows everything. And so John says, listen, this is the confidence that I have. Um, if our hearts do not condemn us, I have confidence before God. Then he goes, he, he says, um, well, actually, I should have been up in verse 19. I'm sorry. Then this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us, right? For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. And so if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and we receive anything that we 
that we ask. And so when I'm standing before my Father, and let's say my heart is condemning me, one of the things I like to pray is the, the, the prayer that David gave us out of Psalm 139 is, Lord, search my heart. I want you to search my heart. Are there things going on inside of me that I need to be aware of that I am not aware of or I'm suppressing or I'm acting like it's okay? Lord, I want my heart to be so in tune with you. Search my heart. And if there is something that is condemning within me, I know that I can bring that before my heavenly father and confess that before him and ask him through his Holy Spirit to help me right that wrong and that God is always faithful and righteous to forgive me and to cleanse me. And so now I have confidence before God that I can receive anything that I ask as we obey his command and because we know that pleases him. And so when you go back to chapter um, 8 in verse 34, when he says that, you know, this is what Christ has done. So listen, Satan may um, try to get you to feel guilty and shameful. Other people might try to get you to feel guilty and shameful. You might feel guilty and shameful about yourself and what you've done. Um, but here's what Paul reminds us. Just think, reframe your thought processes. What did Jesus do? Jesus died. Why did he die? To demonstrate his love for you, to provide for forgiveness, so that you could be justified and clothed in his righteousness. And when Jesus died, then he was what? He was raised to demonstrate that he was God's acceptable sacrifice. And now what happened to Jesus has happened to you in Christ. He, was, he died, you died, buried, buried, raised, raised to walk in newness of life. And Jesus is now at the right hand of God. Continue to follow me here as he's unfolding this. Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 7, or actually chapter 10. Um, I know I'm kind of moving along here. I got five minutes. All right. So chapter 10, verse 10. Here's what he says. And by... And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every high priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so no priest ever sat down in the temple because there were always sacrifices being made. But when the perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus came and he died and he was resurrected as God's approval and say, this is the one. Bulls and goats can never take away the sins of humanity, but the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, not only took away the sin of humanity, but cleansed us from all of our righteousness. And he sat down at the right hand of God to say to us, now my work is complete. It is finished. It is done. What I have begun in you, I will accomplish in the end. And then he goes on to say that Jesus intercedes for me. He intercedes for us. Hebrews chapter 7, begin verse 24. I love this about Christ. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for who? You. Put your name in there. And if that weren't enough, really the crescendo here is Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, it says, therefore, since we have such a high great priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence in that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If I'm standing before the Father and I'm feeling filled with guilt and shame, I know I'm coming to my high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the price for my guilt and shame, and I can come with him not wallowing in the mud, not crawling on my hands and knees, but I come with confidence because I know that's where I find my grace and that's where I find my mercy because I am therefore now no longer condemned because of my relationship with my high priest, my intercessor. Come with confidence. Do I deal with sin? 
You better believe I do. But I do it confidently. And then I don't let the condemning voice of the evil one come hounding me. Well, I don't know that you were repentant enough. I don't know if you were sorrowful enough. I don't know if you really... Let's not live like that. Let's live victorious as conquerors. And here's how he closes it. If I can't be separated from the love of Christ, is there anything in the universe that can conquer me? I mean, look how he finishes out these last few verses. In verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We can are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, nakedness, right? Like you've lost everything. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of being a failure, and, and I'm tired of, you know, trials and persecution. And, and, and Paul reminds us, and the whole Bible, even Jesus reminded us that martyrdom has always been a part of church history, that persecution is always going to be a part of our walk with the Lord. But notice what he says, how he answers that in verse 37. He says, he loved us. That's past tense. Long ago, God set his heart on you, and he loved you. And therefore, Paul says, listen, if you think, like, well, what if, what if I'm like, you know, my faith is put to the test, and it's like, you either renounce Jesus or you're going to lose your life. Could I do that? Could I stand strong? Could I stand faithful? Let me assure you that whatever God needs to give you to stand strong and faithful, I believe through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will enable you to do what you could not ever do on your own. And so he says in verse 30, I'm convinced, passive tense, right, which means he wasn't convincing from within, something outside of him was convincing him, all right? So as he looked at the evidence for the case of grace and the reality of his life, here's what Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death, Paul says, listen, you can kill me, but I'll be closer to ever the Jesus because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Nor life, let me live and I will live for Jesus. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Nor angels, angels will not keep me from the love of Christ. They are ministering spirits who have come to help those who belong to Christ. Nor demons, demons must flee at the name of Christ. They cannot stand up against the name of Jesus. Nor present, I don't have to fear anything that happens because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nor things to come, I don't have to, I don't need, you know, I don't know the future, but I know who holds my future. Nor powers, the powers are greater than the power of God? Are there powers greater than the power of God? No. Jesus is the, behind, is the power behind all powers. He is the one who created all things by him and for him and in him all things are held together. Nor height. What is higher than him? Nothing. He's far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, nor debt. On the first Easter, he descended into the depth of Sheol, into the side of Abraham's bosom, and there he proclaimed freedom to the captives. And when Jesus was resurrected, he emptied out that side of Sheol, and his resurrection became their resurrection, which will ultimately become our resurrection because that's what Christ has promised to us, nor anything else in all of creation. In case I happen to forget something, there is absolutely Absolutely nothing or no one who can keep us from the love of Christ. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. That is the case for grace. That's the grace you live in. That's the grace you dwell in. That's the grace you allow the Holy Spirit to steep you in as you follow Jesus the remainder of your life. Let's pray together. Father, now that we, we have your story, we are humbled. We are greatly humbled because this is all you. It's all you. You loved us and you set your love upon us. You called us out. You've changed our hearts and our lives. And we are forever changed and different and new. And we thank you for that, Father. And God, I pray uh, for those, Lord, this morning as we began this journey through Romans 8, for those who are going through valleys and hardships and persecution and difficulties and setbacks. And God, we, we know life, can, life is hard, but we have a high priest who understands that hardness. 
where he too experienced life in this sin-soaked world and experienced the things that we do and even tempted in the way that we are tempted. But thanks be to God, he was faithful and true to the plan that you constructed. And now the Holy Spirit implements into our lives what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. So, Father, may you breathe within us new life where there's sorrow, where there's difficulty, where there are questions. God, just breathe into us new life. Take us to a new level. Take us to a new height in which we have our relationship with you. God, may what we know to be true impact the way we see you, the way we relate to you, the way we worship you, the way we serve you. May we stand and sing with hearts of abandonment to you because of the love that you have displayed for us and in us and through us in the person of Jesus Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, for those who have never come to faith in Christ, they've danced around the circle, but they've never truly put their hope and their trust in him alone as the payment of their sin and as their hope of their destiny to be clothed in his righteousness through faith and trusting in his payment on the cross. I pray that today they would cross that line of faith and put their hope and trust in Jesus alone as the payment for their sin and to experience relationship with him, to experience the empowerment of your Holy Spirit moving inside and renewing their heart and their life. May your spirit today bear witness to their spirit that they have in fact become a child of God. We as the church, oh God, as we contemplate this holy week, in every facet of what Jesus went through in order to accomplish for us what we now rest in, your amazing, amazing grace. May you challenge our hearts to grow deeper and deeper in that grace, not only in our relationship with you, but in our relationship with each other here in this church, our relationship with those who are outside of the kingdom, Father. May we clothe ourselves in humility in kindness and compassion and love and generosity as we interact with the lost world, that they too might taste of your grace and know that, oh God, you are truly, truly good. So we thank you that your mercies are new every single day. In Jesus' name, we praise you and honor you today. Amen. Let's stand as we close.